Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. John chapter 13, uh, we're going to cover uh, verses 20 to 30 tonight, and um, we're going in the Last Supper, and I've only decided to do 10 verses tonight, which I sometimes would do way more than that, because um, there's just plenty in this Last Supper that we really need to look at and that I don't want to rush through, and I want you to leave with a really good understanding of some things that are happening there, and especially we're going to look at um, the positioning of the disciples, where Jesus is sitting, how they're sitting, if they're sitting, and how everything fits together as they're doing that. Now, have you ever been, uh, and we all have, but I'll just ask the question, have you ever been on the receiving end of some major news, whether good or bad? You ever been on that one? I mean, we've all, and if you haven't, you're, at some point, it's just going to happen. I mean, news that really kind of blows you away and just like, oh my gosh, that just hit me so hard right there. And, and like I said, we all have. Well, the Last Supper is an event like that. They're all sitting there, and Jesus is going to hit them with a statement, with an announcement, and the announcement is really going to blow them away because the announcement that Jesus gives them is he said, he's, we're going to read it, is that one of them will betray him. I mean, you think about that if you're sitting at the Last Supper and you're one of these 12 disciples. You follow him. You've been with him. You've been part of the miracles. And then there they are at the Last Supper and he says, um, one, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. That would be a very heavy statement. Now, as we look at this Last Supper and what we saw two weeks ago, was that, remember that Jesus begins to wash Peter's feet? Remember that one right there? Peter objects, doesn't he? He says, no, 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 no. And there's a reason why he objects. But, but going back to the, the earlier in the chapter, uh, Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Then he says, well, then wash my whole body as well, not just my feet. And so uh, Jesus says, well, I don't have to wash your whole body. He was bathed and he's only to wash your feet to be fully clean. And so what Jesus was teaching us, what we taught two weeks ago, is that he was teaching us on holiness. And that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're, we've been totally forgiven of all of our sins by the blood of Jesus, correct? And so now, only the parts that are dirty of our life when we sin, do we ask God to forgive us, like when they'd walk to the streets and their feet would get dirty. And so that was the imagery of holiness that he was giving there. Now, in the same breath, now he's going to shift it from holiness and he's going to now move from holiness to exposing a sinner within the ranks or just exposing sin. Because when he says, you know, one of you will betray me, now he, things are going to start to happen. Things are going to come to light now. So he goes from teaching on cleansing, on how we're cleansed in Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful for that every day of your life? That you're completely cleansed before Jesus? That you're standing before God is, I've never sinned. That I don't have to walk around and beat myself up or condemn myself or view myself a certain way. I don't have to do those things that I know that all my sins are under the blood of Jesus. But then he moves to exposing the sin. And we know that we see that in Judas. He'll be the one that Jesus is going to talk about. So that's where I want to pick up tonight as we move through John. And in John chapter 13, let me read verse, uh, verse 21 and 22, and it says this. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit <clears throat> and, uh, and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
that one of you will betray me. Now notice what the disciples, they're going to show you. John writes a little bit of the response. He says, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Now, if you're sitting there at the table and you're Judas and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. What do you now in your mind know that Jesus knows? He knows that he's going to be betrayed, and he probably knows that I'm that guy. He probably knows it because he's watched Jesus enough, hasn't he? He knows that Jesus has read plenty of people's minds, knew what they were thinking while they were thinking it. He knows all that. So now you're sitting at the table, and you're Judas, and Judas is thinking, oh my gosh, I know that he knows that he's going to be betrayed, and probably... I'm the betrayer. He probably knows I'm that person. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you're sitting there and you hear the statement, and they don't have any clue who it is. They, they really don't. Because Judas has done a really good job of covering it up. They don't have any clue whatsoever. Would you think it's you? If you're not Judas, would you think it's you? Better question. Could you be absolutely sure it's not you? You, you don't know because Jesus doesn't lie, does he? And he says, one of you, and it's like, oh my gosh, one of us, and Jesus, I've never seen him lie. Now, another question is, as he says that, and it says in verse 22, they're looking around at one another. Would you sit there and look around and think, which one is it? Oh, it's probably Nathaniel, it's got to be him, you know, or it's got to be Leo, Matthew, got, you would start thinking stuff like that, right? You're thinking, somebody at this table, somebody here is a betrayer. And so Jesus locks in on you, and you start to think, which one of us is it who's going to betray Jesus? Now, look at verse 23. It says, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom. It means right here. Look, he's reclining right here. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Verse 24 says, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Now, we have to explain what's going on, all the position, so you fully understand why things are being said, who it's being said to, why he's saying he's on his bosom, all these things, because now it'll make perfect sense. So we're going to explain what's called the triclinium. Now, who's the one that Jesus loved? Which disciple? John. It's John. Who's writing this gospel? John. John is the beloved. You always remember that. It's the one that Jesus loved. Now, Peter gestures to the one that Jesus loved. He gestures to John, and he says, ask him who the traitor is. That's what he wants to know. So Peter's saying it to John. Okay. <clears throat> Our natural thought. Now, as you and I think of 12 disciples and Jesus sitting at a table eating dinner, our natural thought is that they sit at tables like you and I, correct? That we're all sitting in a formal dining room and there's a long table or a round table and we're all sitting there looking at each other and Jesus is probably at the head of that table. And so we think that way. But we got to get that thinking out of our head if we're going to understand why this is being said this way and why this person's doing this. We have to reinterpret, not reinterpret, we have to look back in time <clears throat> And see why what's happening the way it's happening. So let me show you the positioning of how they're sitting exactly so we know what's going on. 
How many, and you all have, have seen the Da Vinci portrait of the Last Supper? It's beautiful, right? It's totally wrong. It's not even close. So if you have the original at home, don't go burning it. It's still worth money, okay? Just, just leave it alone. But it's not the way they ate. Now, the way they ate was at a U-shaped table, okay? It's called the triclinium. Say triclinium. There'll be a test at the end on that, okay? Remember, triclinium. Now, <clears throat> the table would be about anywhere from 6 to 10 inches high off the ground. That's as high as the table is. The way they'd sit there is that, well, they have the open front like on the U here. The servants would come in, bring in the food, and they're putting the food on the table. If you're one of the disciples or at any dinner where you're one of the people eating at the triclinium table, what you would do is you're laying on your left side. You're laying down on the ground. You're not sitting. You're not standing. There's a pillow underneath your left arm. And you're laying like this. Your feet are going out the back way away from the table as everybody's at the triclinium. You're reaching with your right hand and you're grabbing food off this table. And that's the way you're eating that food right there. So now that you get that in your mind, now you can think about, okay, how everything is happening there. <clears throat> if Jesus is laying there and he's reaching for food, John is leaning against Jesus' bosom. Where is John at then? He's right in front of him. He's right here. So John's right here, and, he's, and he leans back on Jesus as Jesus is right behind him. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? So he's leaning right there. Okay, now you got that picture right there. Now, Judas, Jesus is going to reach for a morsel of bread and give it to Judas. So where do you think Judas is at? He's right behind him. So he can take the morsel. John leans against Jesus. Judas is behind Jesus. Jesus takes a morsel. He's going to give it to old Judas standing right be, laying right behind him. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so they're in those two positions right there. Now, Judas is in, because we know the positions of John. They're at the front of the triclinium of John, then Jesus, and Judas. Judas is in the position of honor. Jesus put him at that position that night. He puts him in the place of honor. Now, sitting across the table, laying across the table, you have Peter. So at the front of the triclinium here, you have, you have John, you have Jesus, and you have uh, Judas. Over here at the front, you have Peter. He's going to gesture across the table because John, as he's like this, he can't see everybody back there, but he can see Peter right across the table. Does that make sense? So you can see Peter across the table. Now you know why Peter was not happy with Jesus when Jesus washed his feet. Because Peter's actually in the position of the servant to help people at the table to wash feet. So that's why Jesus, he says, no, 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 wash my feet. Because he's not doing his job. So Jesus gets up and washes their feet and wa washes Peter's feet. Does that make sense now? So as they sit at that table now, now you see the way everything's breaking down right there. And so <clears throat> you've got Judas at the, at the place, and by the way, that's why Jesus was able to wash the feet. That's why when Mary breaks in and she's going to pour the vial of perfume over his feet, it's easy because all their feet are going out best this way. They didn't have to break in the table. They didn't have to say, move away from the table. They're washing the feet because they're laying down like that. So now it makes perfect sense. Now, but Judas is sitting at the place of honor. Peter gestures, ask him. Ask Jesus who it is. That's why nobody else really knows what's going on because there's all kinds of action back here and it's loud and everything. They probably have eating everything. And so Peter says to John, ask him, 
We're going to ask him who it is. You know? And everybody else is having their conversation. John's got his back to everybody. And so that's why you're wondering, why doesn't so-and-so hear this? And why doesn't that happen? Well, because it's the way they're laying there. And it's the way it would happen that way. And so you've got Judas now at the guest of honor. Jesus has him in that position. Now, I've got about four points I think I have tonight. And I believe they're so important from this text. And the first one is this one in your notes. Judas accepts the gift but rejects the giver. Judas accepts the gift, but he rejects the giver. Let me say it again. Judas accepts the gift, but he rejects the giver. Now look at verse 25 and 26, and and watch what this says. It says, He, that's John, because remember, he's the one leaning back, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Look up at me. John's like this. He leans back. Lord, who is it? Because Jesus is right behind him. Lord, who is it? He doesn't have to yell it. doesn't have to say it loud. Lord, who is it? Uh, you know, so he's asking the question right there. Lord, who is it? Um, verse 26. Jesus then answered, because Jesus can speak right forward into him, because John's right in front of him right there. He answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Look up again. So Jesus takes the morsel. All he has to do is give, turn. Here you go, Judas. You're right here. So you see how that works? So he gives him the morsel. So he hands it right, right to him, to, right behind him, as, as, as they're laying right there. Now, when Jesus dips that bread, that morsel in there, and he hands it to Judas, do you know in that moment of time, when that happens, in that specific moment, a 1,000-year-old prophecy is now fulfilled in that moment. This is one of the greatest things about the Scripture. Uh, there are so many prophecies, and there's so many specific to Jesus. And here's one of them, that 1,000 years earlier, David will write, and keep your marker right here, and turn to Psalm 41.9, so you can see it with your own eyes. Turn to your left, Psalm 41.9. A thousand years earlier, this is what David will write. <clears throat> when you're there, say I'm there. Okay, now watch. This is, just, this is one of the things that when people tell me, oh, it's a book written by man, you're out of your mind. How can these, all these prophecies, how can all these things be stated so precisely, so clearly, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, and they come to pass thousand years later. Some even more than that. Some of them are still going to come to pass in our future, but partials of them have come to pass. Look at 41.9. It says this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You say, well, that's David talking about his friends. Yes, but it's a dual. It's a dual thing. He's talking about his own life, but he's talking prophetically that this is going to happen too. This will happen in the Messiah's life. And 1,000 years later, Jesus sits at that table And here's the moment now. He's given him the bread. Now turn back to John 13. Now, question. Here's the biggest question of the night. What's your favorite cereal? We got 60 people here, huh? Cheerios, okay. Do you put a lot of sugar on that or not to get a flavor or anything like that? That's what I do with Cheerios. Sugar Smacks. Sugar Smacks. Tricks. They're for kids, though. You know that, right? Captain Crunch. Captain Crunch, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Better question. Who owns your cereal? Christian, who owns your disciple? Who owns your cereal? General Mills. <laughs> Not General Mills. 
Not General Mills, those of you watching at home later on, okay? Not Gen- no, it's uh, Jesus. He owns it all, right? I-, I mean, doesn't he? Wait a minute, didn't we just read that who ate my bread has lifted up his heel again? Didn't we read that? He said, he who ate my bread. He didn't eat his bread. He ate my bread, the prophetic statement says, of Messiah in the future. Think about that. Judas ate Jesus' bread. Who owns your cereal? Jesus does. Now hold that thought in your mind because it's his bread. It's not yours and mine. Now, he takes Jesus gives him the morsel. He takes the bread from Jesus. Question, has Jesus given him bread before? Yes. When he multiplied, remember? They served it all, but then they picked up all the leftover baskets, right? He has taken bread before. And he's sitting in the place of honor, laying in the place of honor right behind Jesus. And he's pretending friendship with Jesus. He's a liar, isn't he? He's a blatant liar because he's pretending to be the friend of Jesus right there. And Jesus has given him the bread. It's crazy the way the whole picture lines up. So what he's doing is that the whole point is he's taking what Jesus has to give him. and And yet in the same turn of events, he's rejecting friendship with Jesus. Is he not? Is he not? He'll take everything Jesus has to give him, but I reject friendship. Now, let me just tell you, you guys know I'm a movie guy, so I just got to insert this. You know, one of my, one of these movies that I, I, I get into, it's like, you know, it's like Braveheart. I just like, sometimes I think I'm Braveheart when I'm watching it. But, but I really like Braveheart. And, you know, in that movie, William Wallace and everything that happens, and there's that one scene. Oh, my gosh. It's just, how many have seen Braveheart? Enough to know the movie. Okay, good. You guys are all saved. Okay, good. Remember that one battle that they're in and, and part of William Wallace's army just takes off and leaves him hanging because been, he's been set up. And so William Wallace takes off after the main heads of the army on the other side and he gets there and he gets knocked off his horse. And one of the guys turns back. Remember that scene? And he turns back and William Wallace is laying on the ground like he's dead or whatever. And the guy comes down on him and William Wallace is pretending. And then he gets up and he grabs the guy and he's going to slip the guy's throat. And the guy goes, no, 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 no. And he takes off the helmet. And who's underneath that helmet? Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. And it drives you nuts. Because Robert the Bruce was supposed to be a what? A friend. Supposed to be on the same side. We're supposed to be, we're a fellow Scott. And do you remember though? Do you remember looking and just the way the whole scene is, do you remember looking in the face of Mel Gibson, William Wallace, when he sees who it is? It's like he's just shattered. It's like all the air has been let out of him. It's like he put a knife through William Wallace's heart. And it's just like he just cannot believe that someone who's supposed to be on his side has betrayed him. And it's a terrible moment in the movie. And you just want to get Robert the Bruce, that coward, you know that. But here's the thing. Jesus, when he says, one of you will betray me, Look back at verse 21. When Jesus said this, he became what? Troubled in spirit. Does he have the face? Does he have the William Wallace face? You better believe he does. Because John's reading his face. At least the rest of the disciples are reading his face. Now, question. What's what's worth more than money? Friendship. 
Loyalty. Isn't it? Friendship and loyalty are worth more. <clears throat> and when it's broken, doesn't it wound us? Wounds us deeply. And every one of us here watching home, we all know what it feels like, huh? It's a terrible feeling. When you've been betrayed, when, you, when people have turned their back, that you trusted, and I thought we were friends. It's a, it's a terrible thing. And so in the moment, Jesus is feeling exactly that William Wallace Braveheart moment because he's troubled and he makes a statement, one of you is going to betray me. And so you know sitting at the table, you know that he knows what that means. You know what he's heading into. It's going to be a very, it's, it's an excruciating thing he's going toward. Now, that leads us to point two. Another big point, and that's this. Judas, Judas' sin is to live independent of God or his word. To live independent of God or God's word. That's a sin. That's what Judas is committing. Now, to be unholy, you don't have to just commit adultery or murder, right? Though, that's unholy. Say amen to that, okay? That's, that's unholy. Now, but to be unholy, just to simply be unholy for unholy's sake, all you have to do is take God's gifts, right? Show no love and give no time to God. That's all you got to do. That's what Judas did. He took what Jesus had to offer, took everything Judas, uh, Jesus had to give, but he showed no love for Jesus, and he's going to show no time for Jesus whatsoever. And wasn't that the sin of Adam and Eve? Did they not take the gift? I'll give you everything, man. It's all yours. But they decided, no, I'll take all that, and I'm going to live independently of you and your word. Because they believed the serpent who said, has God really said? Uh-uh. Well, yeah, you're right. I can be God. I'll live independent of God's word. See, you got to think of it like this. Here's how it would apply to our lives. And, and, and we all fall prey to it from time to time. And, and it's because we're, we're frail and, and it just happens. It doesn't make us evil. It just happens. But we got to be careful of it. See, when it comes to, in our lives, you know, the money or, or the cars or the vacations or, or things like that or the home and everything, we make that the end of all things that can, and it draws us away from God. Did you hear what I said? We can pretty soon think that that's the end of all things. And I'm, and I'm not telling you not to get the car or the house. I'm not saying that. But don't make that the end of all things that draws our hearts away from God. See, we have the propensity, because we are fallen people, to take the bread and to live independently of God. He gave him his bread. He said, okay, I'll take it, but I really don't need you. And we all have that ability. Every one of us. And we have to be very careful about it in our lives because we don't realize in the moment that we're drifting. Our hearts are drifting away. And so I would say like that 60s TV show, remember? Warning Will Robinson. Anyone remember that? Lost in space. God bless you. Okay, you, you just, that's later on the test too. Okay, so. And so we have to be careful of those things. John the writer, he will later on warn you and I, he's warning Christians Something like that, similar to that, because it was this basic sin of Adam and Eve. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Go to your right. 1 John 2. Now, 1 John chapter 2. <clears throat> yeah, common verses. You've, you've probably read them many times. Um, <clears throat> watch what it says here. Staying on the same idea that things of this world can steal our hearts away from God. That was the Genesis temptation. You can have all these things, but yeah, I'll take it all, and I don't need you, Jesus. Watch what he says, 1 John 2, 15, 16. Do not love the world, 
Now, the word world there is the idea of, it means cosmos or the organized system of the world. That's the idea of it. When we say world, it's the organized system of the world, the way it thinks, the way it moves, the way it operates. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice that you cannot love everything in this world. Not, it doesn't mean you can't have things, but you can't love it, put it above God. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the, the world. Now, that's the Genesis temptation, is it not? We allow stuff. We allow things to become the end of all end out and, stills, and it stills our heart away from God. Think of it like, let's put it in a very simple application. Let's say you, you, you had a child. Love that child. Child starts growing up. Age 16, you buy that child a brand new car. That child gets in that car, 16 years old, and they drive away. And they never come back to visit you again. How would you feel? I know how I'd feel. I feel terrible inside. I feel sad inside. I'd wonder why, why don't they come back to visit? Where, where's my child? The problem is the child took what you had to give, but they didn't want you. And it would break your heart. And there are people in church and out of church that break God's heart all day long. All day long. We're called to be disciples. It's God's stuff. It's not our stuff. Whatever we achieve, Deuteronomy 8, he's given us the power to make wealth. He has given us the power. He has given us the power to make wealth, not us of, of ourselves. It's all God's. It's all his. Now, number three in your notes, that's this. Jesus makes a last second attempt to save Judas from hell. And this is what he's going to do. Jesus is going to make a last second attempt to save Judas from hell. <clears throat> so he dips, he takes the bread, Jesus takes the bread, right? He dips it in there and he gives it to Judas. Question, do you know what that means? Because it's not just like, oh, that's nice of Jesus to give him some bread. No, this has major significance. This is why John's writing this thing. Because the moment that you share bread, a meal with somebody, you are declaring unconditional acceptance. You are declaring friendship. You are declaring loyalty in that culture. This is a huge event that's going on right here. Jesus is saying, I pledge my loyalty to you. I pledge my friendship to you. You know what? If you think about that, what is he offering Judas? It blows my mind, but he's offering him a way out, isn't he? He's giving away out here. Judas, don't do it. Now, theologically, my brain would explode thinking about that because I know it's foretold. We read it, right? And Jesus, he's God. They could see, he can see the future. He knows it's going to happen. But there he is, and he's offering that. I, look, I, I'm like with the who, man. I can't explain. I think it's love. I can't explain it, man. Some of you didn't get that at all. Okay, but anyway. Okay, but some of you did. Okay, it's a free one. Now, he, he offers it, and I'm thinking, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why you'd offer him a way out. You know he's going to betray you. You know this is how it's going to happen. H how do I answer that? How do I piece that together in my mind? I, the only, <laughs> my only way of coming to, the, to some kind of answer of why Jesus does that, even though theologically he's going to betray him, is this. Look back at John 13.1. Let's go back to John. 
Look at verse 1. Look at the very beginning of chapter 13. Watch what it says here. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he what? Say it. He loved them to the end. That's the only way I can explain it. I mean, it theologically doesn't make any sense. But he's loving them all the way. And he goes, here, Judas, take the morsel. I'm your friend. Don't do it. So what does Judas do? He does it. Look at verse 27, chapter 13. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do what? Do quickly. That's right. Judas takes the bread. He's going to continue the scheme. Now, what's interesting, it says that Satan entered into him. Now, question, does that mean he's demon-possessed? I don't know. I have no idea. Some people say yeah. Other people say no. I, I personally would lean no. I don't think he's possessed, per se. Um, but maybe it means that he's already on board with the plan. Satan's already got us thinking. And the reason I can say that with confidence is look at verse 2 of chapter 13. Look back again. Because John's building the case. Look at verse 2. It says, During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Was it already now in his heart? Before he ever came to that table. It's already there. He's already thought it through. He's already made the decision. We know he's already talked to the Pharisees and the scribes. We know he set it all up. We know it. And Jesus gives them the more says, don't do it, man. This is the last chance. So what, what's really going on here? What, what's the possibility? I think maybe it's this. This is an I think. It's just Jim, I think. Is that maybe when Jesus gives them the morsel, this is like it's the last barrier for Judas. If he crosses this threshold, this line, it's done. He will never turn back. This will be it in his life. It's like his last chance before hell. This is true of everyone's life on planet Earth. When will they get their last chance? Before hell comes. Everybody's going to have to face that at some point who is an unbeliever. So it's the last chance. This is it, Judas. I'm giving you a shot now. And number four in your notes. It's a question. It's not a statement. It's a question. What was the tone of Jesus' voice that night? What was the tone of Jesus' voice that night? Now, you got to speculate with me because I wasn't there and I didn't hear it. But judging by all the circumstantial evidence at the table and what's going on, what was the tone of Jesus' voice that night? Let's look at 28, 29, and 30. Watch this. He gives them it. He goes, go ahead. What you do, do quickly. Verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Does anybody at the table know what's going on? No one knows. No one knows. Verse 29. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need, we have need of for the feast. Or else that he should give some into the poor. Do they have a clue? Nothing. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. I like the way John does that, because he uses these imagery in John, the Gospel of John, light and dark and day, because it's night. Something demonic, something evil is going to happen. And we know even when Jesus goes to the cross at noon, what happens to the sky, the sun? It goes dark. It's night. This is whole home visual imagery that's going on here with that. Now, 
<clears throat> Jesus exposed at the beginning of the chapter, beginning of what we read tonight, he exposed you to sin. Did he not when he said, one of you will betray me? Didn't he do that? Okay. But he didn't do it like he exposed sin on the Temple Mount, did he? When he overturned the tables of money changers. That was pretty wild, right? Everybody knew you guys are a bunch of sinners. And Jesus was, he was, he was on it, man. And when he, he said stuff, he says He didn't even do it like when he told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! For you travel about on sea and land to make one convert. When he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Remember he said that? Man, Jesus laid him out. Woe to you, you brood of vipers. Remember he called them that? You generation of snakes. He was laying them out. This was loud. It was in their face type stuff. Does he do it that way here? Mm -mm. Doesn't do it. Why? What's the difference? There's a big lesson in this. Because when Jesus gets loud and gets in their face on the Temple Mount, it was because they're messing with God the Father's house, right? Right? When Jesus gets in the Pharisees' face about you, 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 woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, it was because they're messing with people, right? But here at the table, he stays calm. But he exposes it. Why? Because the sin that Judas is committing was just personally against Jesus. It wasn't against God the Father. It wasn't against other people. It was against Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't get loud. In fact, he stays so calm that nobody at the table even knows what's going on. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Isn't there? Isn't there? Yeah. Judas leaves it, and they don't even know what's going on. Jesus is as calm as calm gets because the sin is against him, not against other people. Look, you guys have heard me say it. I just got to say it repeatedly because I just think it's true. We live in a crazier world than we ever thought, correct? Yes. Yes. There's plenty of angry people now, right? Yes. I mean, that's, and that's even an understatement now. But you see, you don't have to look very far either. You say, oh, it's not that way. Okay, really. Um, it's everywhere. Um, but people are, they just get, they're just angry, just angry. And they just need to find something they can, next thing they can be angry at. I mean, I read that one, This we were reading that one. Remember the, those young teenage girls go in the supermarket, pour milk out on the floor? I'm thinking, oh yeah, that really did a big statement there, you know, because, what was it, methane gas coming out of cows, or I, I don't know what it was. It was so ridiculous. I'm thinking, why don't you buy the milk, go outside, pour it in the street if you want to waste milk, you know. But it's like, we always got to find something to be angry at. And I'm of the strong opinion, I don't have any scientific surveys, but I observe and I've watched, and, and you watch these things, and you, I know the stats on a lot of other things that will contribute to it. And you live, we live in a generation now that everybody wants to just find something to get angry about. It has nothing to do with that person individually. Nobody did anything to them. I'm going to find something I can blow up about. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to blow up and I'm going to blow up. It's almost like it gives them a reason to be alive, huh? But it's crazy. Now, I think all of our leaders in America, well, not all, but most of them have no clue as far as the problem. They don't see what the problem is. But we are a morally declining civilization. We are eroding. We've erased God. Plus the fact we are a society where there's so much absentee fatherism in families there's so many kids are growing up without dads and stuff like that. This is a major dilemma, is it not? It's a big deal. And we even pay money out as government. We give money 
to women, have more kids, and not get married. Because if they get married, they take the money away. And so we contribute to that. That's, that's true. That started in the Johnson era, the Johnson administration. It started out as a good thing, but it's turned into this thing. And so you see all this brokenness, and we live in a broken society, and fatherless kids, and they're growing up, and they're angry to begin with because of that. And now they get up, and they're angry. They're trying to find something. And so what happens is they grow up physically, they grow up intellectually, but do they grow up emotionally? No, we have a generation of people that are in full-grown physical bodies, but they are emotionally children. That's exactly what they are. That's why relationships break up. That's why marriages break up. That's why you talk to people and their spouse blows up fast or they're intimidated by a spouse because they're married to a child. That's why you talk to people and you find out, well, they say, well, my husband, he's so angry. Well, the husband doesn't realize why he's so angry is because growing up this and that. But he thinks that, you know, he's putting mom's face on you or dad's face on you. He doesn't know he's doing that. And there's just a lot of that going around. And it's all over the place. And you watch this, and and if you tell me that's not true, then you need to sit and counsel some people for about 30 years and find out for yourself and find out all the pain and all the hurt and all the anger in people's lives. Why do you think people need Jesus so badly? They don't even know how to carry themselves. They don't even know what to do. And so we sit in this world that's falling apart relationally and just want, they just want to, and, and that's why we're watching more and more people hurting more people and killing more people and doing all these, because they just don't care anymore. We need to just take a lesson from Jesus Christ. And if you're watching this at home and you, you have anger issues, take a lesson from Jesus. He stayed calm. Judas is going to sin against him. He's going to do it to him. And Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, stays calm. He doesn't blow up. He doesn't blow up at all. He just stays calm. And he shows his love by taking the morsel and giving it to Judas. I'm your friend. Even though you're going to hurt me, what you're going to do is going to hurt me so bad, I'm going to give you the morsel. Why can Jesus, why can Jesus do that? I'll tell you why. I like to say it this because he's a grown-up. He's a grown-up physically, he's a grown-up intellectually, and he's a grown-up emotionally. He's a grown-up. And that's the way grown-ups are supposed to operate. Aren't they? I think so. I think so. Now, okay, now let me drive this thing home now. <clears throat> With another, two quick thoughts. One quick thought, then another longer thought. When Judas leaves the room, think about this, and I won't give you the full answer, but I'll give you some of it tonight, because when we get to when it happens, well, then I'll back up and I'll put it all together. When Judas leaves the room to betray Jesus, why doesn't he just step outside the room and say, hey, guys, come get him? I mean, it's all set up, right? Why didn't he just step out and say, okay, come get him? Why aren't the soldiers out there? Why aren't the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees out there? Because when Jesus had them set up the Passover meal, did he let Judas go with them to know where the meal was going to be? No. No. He sent two disciples. He sent Peter and John. No one else knew the location. Does Jesus do that by design? You better believe it. Because Jesus now needs that last supper, and when they edit, and we'll see that, he moves from inside, and then we're going to go to the teaching Jesus gives outside. There is teaching he gives us how to function inside and how to function outside. We're going to shift to outside pretty quick here, 
but he's going to give him this last teaching because we're going to shift to where he leaves the room and he's going to walk down the Kidron Valley up. He's going to cross at night, go up to the, the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to give him massive teaching in that time. And he needs that time to give him all that he's given him right now. This is like the last instructions. So he on purpose did not let Judas know where that last supper was. So that Judas couldn't step out and say, come on, get him now. No, Judas has to go get the guys and then bring them back to where he thinks Jesus will be. Not where he knows, but where he thinks Jesus will be. And we'll get to that later on in, in the story, okay? So you just hold on to that for now and don't ask me any questions later more about it because I won't tell you till we get there. Because <laughs> <clears throat> i got to save some cards under my sleeves or something. Okay, now, <clears throat> here's the last thought, last thought. <clears throat> Remember in John 12... Because this is the con. John's putting contrast together, and it's brilliant. In John 12, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes in, and they're reclining at a table. What does she bring in with her? The perfume, right? What does she do with it? Pours it over the feet of Jesus, right? Because Jesus' legs are sticking out. Remember that? Okay. Now, she pours it out. How much was it worth? 300 denarii. That's 300 days worth of wages to you and I, right? That, that's a lot, right? <clears throat> so she's expressing her love, her devotion, devotion her, her thankful heart to Jesus by pouring out 300 days worth of wages on Jesus' feet. That's a lot, isn't it? Because she's thankful. Now, John contrasts it, putting the story together. It's magnificent. Judas, he sees it happen in John 12. And what does he say? You wasted it. Why'd you waste it? You, you know, and we know he's a liar, right? Why, you, we could have sold that. We could have taken all the money, given it to the poor. We could have done all these things. But he's a liar and he's a thief. Because we know he's been stealing from the money box. Now, <clears throat> is he annoyed? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> it's not a true question. He's deeply annoyed over what's been poured out. <clears throat> He's annoyed that anyone, that anyone like you and me would ever think Jesus is worthy of such extreme devotion that we would give him so much from our lives. It annoys him. Why would you give Jesus so much? Why would you offer him that? Why would you give to God? Why would you spend so much on Jesus? Why would you tithe? Why would you give that family money over there that needs money because they're hungry? Why would you give the special? It annoys some people, doesn't it? It annoyed Judas. Because he looks at Mary and says, you fool, you fool. What a waste. You wasted $300 worth or 300 days worth of wages of money. <clears throat> because going back to the issue, of Judas's, Judas only served Jesus for what he could get out of him, right? Right? That's not a disciple. He never loved Jesus personally. Never did. He never did. And so therefore, he could not understand it. He could not understand it, what this Mary was doing. And because he couldn't understand it, it came a point in time where he'll never understand it. Never. And this led to Satan entering into his mind, talking him into it. 
and making him his minion. And he sells out Jesus because he couldn't understand it because his attitude was so wrong. He just wanted what Jesus would give him. He didn't want Jesus. And we got to be careful of that in our lives. Amen? Okay, we'll pause there. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> that key statement there, you gave us your bread. It is not our bread. Everything that we possess, it is not ours. It is yours. You are the one that gave us the power to make wealth. You are the one that has blessed us in these ways. It's not ours. It's not our cereal. Thank you, God. And help us to always be able to discern when we're making stuff, things, possessions, the end of all ends instead of you. And, and leads to stealing away our heart. God, we want to be disciples. We want to take up our cross and follow you daily. <clears throat> we want our lives to count for you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all say, Amen. Amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.